Nuclear lies. They do it all the time. Twist information and make you think one thing when the truth is something entirely different. And it seems that no matter how much truth and evidence those who oppose them bring to bear against their manipulative claims, they persist in their attempts to trick people into agreeing with them and acting against their own best interests. But then you hear a knowledgeable veteran activist in far northern Saskatchewan who has been fighting against uranium mining lies for decades. And as the industry pushes for new mining practices in formerly pristine lands, she tells you... They claim that it's going to have a smaller environmental footprint, but the mess will be underground. And in this case, they intend to use freeze wall technology to surround the deposits pump down the acids and chemicals that they use to leach out the uranium, pump it back up into a processing plant, and then pump the stuff back down into the ground when they're done. But question is, what happens when they stop maintaining that freeze wall? It's acid. It's going to move. And it's going to continue to leach. And it's going to get into the aquifers. They talk about groundwater moving very slowly in that area. Well, yeah but you're going to be long gone and we'll still be here. Well, when Candace Paul of English River First Nation in Saskatchewan reveals the ongoing manipulation of these nuclear lies and the impact on her people, the land, and the water, you understand that every step of the nuclear fuel chain is devastating to life forever and imbued with lies of all kinds, and that puts all of us in that deadly radioactive seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I am the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear meltdown at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, we receive an update on uranium mining, small modular nuclear reactor issues, and long-term storage of highly radioactive waste with Candace Paul, a veteran activist against nuclear contamination on her ancestral lands in northern Saskatchewan. She paints a picture of an industry intent upon imposing its toxic agenda on the indigenous population there and how she and others are fighting to stop them. We will also have nuclear news from around the world, numbnuts of the week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness, and more honest nuclear information than Cassidy Hutchinson shared at today's January 6th hearing, not that it was any less explosive. All of this coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, June 28, 2022, And here is this week's nuclear news from a different perspective. Starting in Ukraine, 
where that country's nuclear regulatory agency faces an unprecedented struggle to maintain nuclear safety, most notably including, quote, terrorism against firefighters and nuclear power plant personnel at the Russian-occupied Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. Kharkov is interim head of Ukraine's Nuclear Regulatory Inspectorate. Kharkov told a June 20th meeting of the European Nuclear Safety Regulators Group that staff at Zaporizhia is under heavy psychological pressure from Russian soldiers. He said there is kidnapping and attacks on nuclear power plant staff at Enerhodar, the Russian-occupied city closest to the plant. We have evidence of this. There have been further reports of intimidation, interrogation, and torture of Zaporizhia workers. In a June 17 article, the Wall Street Journal documented a campaign of intimidation against Zaporizhia employees by Russian troops, who were worried that workers were passing on information to Ukrainian forces. This includes workers going missing, being shot or being kidnapped, and imprisoned for weeks at a time, sometimes with no food or water. Troops have fired at staff and kidnapped the chief of the plant. Korokov began his career at Zaporizhia as a field operator and then a control room operator. Korokov explained that some workers at Zaporizhia were conscripted to fight in the Ukrainian military. Some were in Russian-occupied areas of Ukraine where it is impossible for them to perform their functions, and some may be abroad working remotely, but, quote, existing communications channels are unstable. An additional problem, if not danger, is that the agency is unable to send inspectors to the besieged plant and, as a result of military action, may not be able to discover or address safety issues. Not for the first time, Korakov found himself at odds with the International Atomic Energy Agency, the IAEA, over possible solutions. While Korakov argued that Zaporizhia's safety and security could only be secured with the end of Russian occupation, IAEA head Rafael Grossi continued his push to send a mission of inspectors and experts to the plant over vehement Ukrainian objections. There is considerable distance between Grossi's claims that Kiev had requested an IAEA mission to Zaporizhia and the very public refusals of such a request from the Ukrainian nuclear regulator and Energoatom, both of which believe such a mission might legitimize the Russian occupation. Counterpunch has published an article, What is Westinghouse Doing in Ukraine?, by Linda Pence-Gunter, that expands upon her report last week on this same issue for the nuclear hot seat, Hot Story. We'll have a link to it up on the website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 575. The historic first meeting of states' parties to the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons concluded in Vienna on June 23rd with the adoption of a political declaration and practical action plan that set the course for the implementation of the treaty and progress towards its goal of the total elimination of nuclear weapons. United Nations Secretary General Antonio Gutierrez said, The once unthinkable prospect of nuclear conflict is now back within the realm of possibility. More than 13,000 nuclear weapons are being held in arsenals across the globe, and in a world rife with geopolitical tensions and mistrust, this is a recipe for annihilation. Sixty-five nations have ratified this treaty 
and it has entered into force of international law, though none of the nine nuclear weapons-owning nations has yet to comply with it. Regarding the new Chinese EPR nuclear reactors, for a year, one of them has been shut down because of anomalies. The Nuclear Safety Authority says that now a second one is also affected by anomalies. These are described as wear problems in the equipment that holds the uranium in the reactor vessel. The first EPR has already been shut down for nearly a year, and there is concern that these French-built reactors will manifest the same problems in the French EPR nuclear reactor in Flamanville in France. The equipment is the same as in China, and all have been manufactured by the French plant of Le Cousette. In the Netherlands, after decades of ignoring nuclear as a possible energy source, they are now betting on a nuclear revival. The Borsel nuclear power station is the only full-scale commercial reactor the Dutch ever built. It opened in 1973 and was intended as the first of six in the area. But that was before both Chernobyl and Fukushima, which compelled many nations to abandon their atomic ambitions and embrace fossil fuels. Now, the Netherlands have earmarked 5 billion euros, or 5 billion 200 million U.S. dollars, to fuel what they are calling an atomic renaissance. And now for this week's adventures in nuclear boneheadedness. Nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, none that's out of week. In the Philippines, the Bataan nuclear power plant is located in the foothills of Mount Natib, only five miles from the caldera, meaning the hot liquid lava. It was never activated due to anti-nuclear sentiment in the aftermath of the Chernobyl power plant disaster in 1986, with protests expressing concerns that the Bataan nuclear power plant was in an earthquake zone, and the volcano's Lubao fault runs through both the volcano and the power plant. But in March of 2022, Philippine President Rodrigo Duterte signed an order to include nuclear power as part of the country's energy supply. Even worse, any involvement of this nuclear reactor in a program of energy will only get the go-ahead with the say-so of, wait for it, the Vienna-based International Atomic Energy Agency, which continues to prove itself a pro-nuclear energy shill around the world. According to Manila Mayor Isco Moreno, the Bataan nuke reactor is no longer, quote, suitable for power generation, but that's not necessarily going to stop the pieces from moving forward. And a recent article's headline stated, Reactivating nuclear power plant near volcano, a bad idea, geologists say. Ya think? And that's why Philippine President Rodrigo Duterte and your allies at the International Atomic Energy Agency, you are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's out of week. We'll have links available to several articles that are important on an international level and just too long to get into here. The first is from the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists on the fact that small modular reactors are getting a reality check about their waste, and it turns out they're going to create much more than their larger brethren. From the Diplomat.com comes an article with the question headline, Can Nuclear Energy Power South Korea's Future? 
It shows the various positions of progressives and conservatives. And hopefully they all come to the conclusion, no, it can't. Out of Scotland, an article by Dr. Richard Dixon entitled, Nuclear Power Industry is Waging a Propaganda War. Here's why it should have no place in our energy future. And nuclear historian Alex Wellerstein has a jaw-dropping article about Russia's Tsar Bomba nuclear bomb, a 100-megaton bomb that, that is the largest ever built and fortunately has never been exploded because we might not have a planet left if they did. Fascinating article. All of these links will be on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 575. In Japan, at the remains of the three melted-down Fukushima nuclear reactors, on June 14, Tokyo Electric Power Company began halting coolant water injection into Reactor 3 as an experiment. It was meant to continue for three months, but water level decreased faster than the estimate, and TEPCO was forced to restart water injections to keep the radioactive remains cool in just five days. Then there's this numbnuts-adjacent story. The Japan Atomic Energy Agency will give France plutonium extracted from spent nuclear fuel from its Fugen Advanced Converter Reactor. Plutonium? For me? You shouldn't have. And they really shouldn't. On June 22nd, Japanese and French governments exchanged notes on the transportation and reprocessing of the spent nuclear fuel and the return of high-level radioactive waste to Japan. As for the transportation... Locals in France were not informed that mobile Chernobyl was going to be coming on their roadways through their cities, towns, farmland, etc. We'll link to an article on Fukushima's dueling museums. One TEPCO's decommissioning archive center, which focuses on the nuclear accident, what its workers endured, and provides rich details on the decommissioning process, which is expected to take three to four decades. The other is the Great East Japan Earthquake and Nuclear Disaster Memorial Museum and focuses on how the lives of the prefecture's residents were affected by the cascading disaster from March 11th. The archive ignores many controversial issues that reflect badly on Tokyo Electric Power Company, while the memorial conveys the human tragedy, while addressing some of the controversies not covered in the archive. It makes for a great read, and of course we will have it up on the website under links. And in the U.S., NASA has picked three companies to develop lunar nuclear power systems because, hey, we haven't despoiled the moon yet. We'll have this week's featured interview in just a moment. But first, last week, if you didn't notice, was our 11th anniversary show. So today marks the start of Nuclear Hot Seat's 12th year of providing weekly programs with updates on nuclear issues from that all-important, different perspective. What has been created is an audio history of what we've been going through week by week for 11 years. A running list of nuclear industry manipulations explained and countered by a wide range of international experts and activists. Where else are you going to find this kind of information? Not in mainstream media, that's for sure. Nuclear is unfortunately not going anywhere. Not the weapons, reactors, radioactive waste, the contaminations we already face. And it is important that we all understand what's there, what we're up against, and what, if any, steps can be taken 
to fight against its expansion and mitigate the problems it has already created. That is why Nuclear Hot Seat is here. We're dedicated to giving you the nuclear stories with context and continuity. Not only what the industry is doing now, but how brave activists around the world are taking steps to fight back against this forever contamination of our precious planet. And that's why we need your help to keep going. So in honor of our 11th anniversary, how about sending in a donation of $11 with maybe one to grow on or more? Be it a one-time donation or monthly recurring support, You'll be helping to keep Nuclear Hot Seat up and running and providing you with cutting-edge information on what the short-sighted nukesters are doing, as well as what we can do to protect ourselves. Go to NuclearHotSeat.com, click on the red Donate button, do what you can now, and know that however much you can help, I am deeply grateful that you're listening and that you care. Now here is this week's featured interview. It's a common talking point among those who oppose nuclear that the negative impact of uranium mining in particular has come down disproportionately on indigenous people around the world. But in reality, what does that look like? And what does it do to those who have traditionally lived close to the land and have been fighting against this environmental devastation for decades? Our guest today fills in the picture based on what her own people and lands have been experiencing. Candace Paul has lived in northern Saskatchewan for nearly four decades with her husband, well-known activist Marius Paul. She is a member of the English River First Nation, where she lives on La Plange Reserve, where she has spent many years living and learning the traditional northern culture, which she is passing on to the next generation. When her community became a target of the Nuclear Waste Management Organization on a proposal to store high-level nuclear waste in her family's territory, she became the outreach coordinator for Committee for Future Generations. This group has been educating the public about the risks of nuclear waste and uranium mining for the past 10 years. Candace recently accepted a place on the Board of Keepers of the Water, an indigenous-led organization which advocates to protect the waters of their regions. Both Candace and Marius stand to protect the land, waters, and future generations from the over-ambitious resource-extractive industries that are targeting their part of northern Saskatchewan, from logging to peat mining to uranium mining. I spoke with Candace Paul on Sunday, June 26, 2022. Candace Paul, thanks so much for joining us on Nuclear Hot Seat. You're welcome. I'm glad to be with you. You're up in Saskatchewan in northern Canada, and we've spoken before about the circumstances there. Fill people in, first of all, on uranium mining. How long has uranium been mined in Saskatchewan, and what has this done as a result to the water, the land, and the people? Okay, uranium mining started in northern Saskatchewan in an area called the Athabasca Basin, which is covers pretty much the top quarter of the province there's lots and lots and lots of uranium in that area so uranium mining started around the late 1940s after the end of the war and it was all gathered for the cold war project all nuclear weapons so there was there's over 40 abandoned uranium mines in that region on the north side of lake athabasca 
And uh, some of them have not been remediated at all. Some are still in the process of being remediated, just started. And like there's a 60, 70 year legacy now of tailings dust blowing and flowing into the lake. There's contamination of the water in some bays. First Nations people in the area have asked for a gate to prevent fish from going into that area. And the government says, no, that's too disruptive to the environment and the fish. There are, the fish are contaminated. There are signs on some of the shores that say women and children under 12 should only eat this fish once every couple of weeks or so, which is unrealistic because fish is a mainstay of the diet. You know, the people up there live in very remote circumstances. It's, it's fly-in communities primarily. And there are a lot of sick people. There's a lot of cancers. In 2014, I was in La Ronge, Lac La Ronge, another northern town for Canadian Nuclear Safety Commission hearings on one of the mines. And there were 40 women flown in for breast cancer testing. It's had an impact on the people. I once asked some of the people up there, they're seeing a lot of birth defects. And they don't want to talk about it, but they are. It has intergenerational impact on the people and it affects the immune system. So in a lot of our Northern communities in this recent pandemic, we had very, very high rates of COVID because the immunity is not what it is in other places. And that's one of the impacts that we, we are suffering. A lot of the miners over the years have contracted various kinds of cancers and it is in the population that aren't minors as well because and it's higher way higher than it ever was and that's and this is the issue that we have with the medical authorities is they say our cancer rates are on par with the south but our cancer rates weren't as high as the south in the first place and they're not measuring it by that yardstick they're using a different measurement to say, well, you know, you're as healthy as or unhealthy as the rest of the population. They've also done birth studies, but they compared it to Northern Alberta rather than other places. And Northern Alberta has high incidence of radon because there is radon releases from the tar sands. So the measures that they're using are, are unrealistic. Miners aren't just affected by the radiation, they're also affected by the heavy metals and the chemicals that are used in the process in the mills. So, you know, it is in the animals that we eat because we depend on the fish and the moose and the caribou for meat because imported meat is way too expensive. It's even worse now. There were studies done on caribou and moose. And I actually spoke to the scientist before she passed who did the study. And she said, but they're below the accepted safety level you know, the contaminants, the heavy metals and the, and the radionuclides. And I asked her, I said, well, what do you think of the safety levels? Are they set low enough? And she said, now you're asking the right question, but I can't answer you because I will never work again if I do. So we have, you know, had a long struggle of trying to prove to the Canadian Nuclear Safety Commission that our people were healthier before mining. They claim that our people die younger. And that's not even true because they never did baseline studies. How do they know that? Because my father-in-law's 
generation live to be in their late 90s and hundreds. So why are they saying that our people die younger? Is it because that just justifies what they're trying to say? I think it has a lot to do with it. So they've, they've started a new study on the miners, but they're not including the population. And the population still eats these moose, still eat these caribou, still eat these fish from those areas that are contaminated. It affects the plants. You know, it's in the food chain. And the farther it goes in the food chain, the more it has an impact. What we've talked about is just in relationship to uranium mining. What are some of the other issues that you are being pressed with, nuclear issues that are coming or being promised or being threatened to come to northern Saskatchewan? Well, right now we have a lot of uranium exploration going on. The other thing is, and that push is coming from two things now, well, actually three. The nuclear industry is pushing small modular nuclear reactors. They like to call them SMRs because they like to leave out the nuclear word. So with that push, there's a push for more exploration and mining. Then on top of that, the NASA is and the military are looking at using nuclear to power spaceships and, and possible exploration on planets and that sort of thing. So there's a big push from their end. And the third thing is this war with Russia and Ukraine. And the speculators are just wringing their hands really happily because now the United States is looking to buy more uranium from Canada. There had been a bust in this industry from 2011 on because of the Fukushima triple meltdowns. And for many years, some of the mines were shelved and put on just care and maintenance. So a lot of the workers got laid off and a lot of them lost all the fancy stuff that they, they had accumulated while they were working for big money. So, you know, big boats, the quads, those kinds of things just kind of dwindled down in our communities. You know, the people felt that, really felt that. And then COVID hit and the last mine shut down because they couldn't keep COVID out of the man camps, which was impacting all of the communities of the North. So kind of public demand and family demands of those workers was that they should shut those mines down, at least until the worst of the pandemic was over. But because of this war, because of the SMR push, the mines have reopened. And so we have Cigar Lake, MacArthur River are operating. The two mills, Key Lake and McLean Lake, are operating. This is what's going on right now. And then with all the exploration, like there's different mining companies uh, in various stages of environmental impact assessments. The one is Denison Mines. And it is looking at doing in situ recovery mining on our territory, on English River First Nation territory. Isn't that the same type of mining that is being opposed by Navajo Nation people about the kind of mining that's being proposed on their land? It's possible. Uh, they've done this type of mining only in Wyoming, and it's really screwed up aquifers. They claim that it's going to have a smaller environmental footprint. 
because there's not going to be the big pits. There's not going to be the big rock waste piles, that sort of thing. But the mess is underground. The mess will be underground. And in this case, they intend to use freeze wall technology to surround the deposit, pump down the acids and chemicals that they use to leach out the uranium, pump it back up into a processing plant, and then pump the stuff back down into the ground when they're done. But question is, what happens when they stop maintaining that freeze wall? It's acid. It's going to move. It's going to continue to move. And it's going to continue to leach. And it's going to get into the aquifers. Like they talk about groundwater moving very slowly in that area. Well, yeah, but you're, you're going to be long gone by the time it reaches a point where it is going to affect an aquifer. And we'll still be here. In terms of jobs, you know, that's been one of the mainstays of the uranium industry in northern Saskatchewan is it provides a lot of jobs for northerners because there is no other economy. They promised another economy up here and never happened. They never intended for it to happen. Most of our communities don't have paved roads. Most of them don't have more than a minimal grocery store, confectionery and gas bar. That's it. Where are people getting jobs? The schools, the clinic, that sort of thing. There's no other type of job. They killed the fur trade, the fur industry. So, you know, trappers are no longer working. So basically they've become, you owe your soul to the company store, as they say. You know, of the people that work in there is high. I mean, they like their money. They need their money. They need to provide for their families. But at the same time, people, even former miners, are against opening more mines. They are tired of the footprint because they still depend on the wild animals. They still love the land. But it's become too much. The one company says they've got 300,000 hectares. That's 1,158 square miles under their claims that they're exploring. So that's showing you the cumulative impact of the exploration. Every exploration site in large scheme of things is very tiny, but you put them all together and that whole Athabasca Basin, which is all our Danai territory, is up for exploration and encroachment. And it's affecting the animals and it's affecting the traffic and the line cuts are affecting the forest and the migration routes of the caribou and everything else. And people are finding, you know, they go up to their cabins and there's been unknown people around hunting up there that have never hunted up there before. And there's quad trails everywhere. And, you know, it's really impacting the way that we can use our lands. You have to go through gates to get to some of the places, to go through the mine sites to get to some of the places. So, you know, in terms of the miners, these are all one week in, one week out, or two week in, one week out type of jobs. So they're away from their families a lot. And that's had an impact on their children and their partners. So half the time, it's like the kids are being raised by a single parent. And that makes it difficult, you know, it, it, and then the dynamics change as soon as the other parent comes home and you got to adjust. Uh, we used to run a school and we could tell which kids' parents were, when their parents were coming home and what they were anticipating. And 
it was really disruptive kind of uncertainty in their lives. It wasn't the best at all. And that's for people like who have been already impacted by loss of parenting skills because of the residential school systems that were imposed upon Indigenous people, where, you know, they were nine months, 10 months with priests and nuns and brothers in residential schools and never got to see their parents until summer. And so there was a lot of loss of parenting skills, and it's really hard to rebuild that when parents are away. It's like taking the parents away from the children now. You know, and that's the reason there's these man caps and these, all of these mines are now remote. They're not building towns around them because they learned from the uranium city uh, mines. They closed down those mines just because of the impacts of the radiation on the townspeople and they dispersed that population. So they couldn't see that there was big clusters of illnesses that way. I know that one of the other pressures that your area was under was to be the location for a long-term, high-level radioactive waste dump. And that was rejected successfully in northern Saskatchewan. It's now focused on, I believe, the Ontario area. There are two locations there. What did it take to organize the people for a great enough pushback to be able to defeat it back then? And what continuity has there been of that kind of organization and shared voice of protest as it comes to the more recent generations of nuclear problems? During that time, we had to really organize quickly. We organized a educational push because really only the little communities that were interested were getting a little bit of information from the nuclear waste management organization. And it was all, everything's very nice and glossy and doesn't really tell you everything that you need to know. And they called it a phased management process. So they could change things as they went along. And, you know, the one time we went to one of their displays, the lady was describing the process and showing us how the storage units that would hold the nuclear rods would work and it all fell apart. The model fell apart. And the pens <laughs> that they were handing out didn't work. So how do you trust them to do it right, right? And then I asked her and she, where she was from. She said she was from Toronto. And I said, well, why would the nuclear industry spend all the money and all the effort to transport this across three provinces, this highly radioactive waste across three provinces to bring it up. And she said, the people of Toronto don't feel safe. Well, most of the people in Toronto don't even know where they get their power. You know, they just accept they have power. And she's being one of the people that knows about nuclear power would be one of the people that didn't feel safe. So basically that said two things. It's not safe and we are expendable and over them. So that pushback really happened. We went across the whole province. We did a petition. We had over 20,000 signatures from across the province. We looked at the transportation routes, the possible transportation routes, and we contacted the communities and gave them some explanations. We got explanations from experts like Dr. Gordon Edwards, 
and other physicists that are very much aware and educated on it so that we're not just giving out garbage information. So in the one community, we were asked to come and give a talk to the Chamber of Commerce and Nuclear Waste Management Organization was there. And the question they asked us was, what are your credentials? So they were trying to undermine who we are by the lack of knowledge that we had. Fortunately, we had a physicist with us. And he turned that around and said, what are your credentials? (laughs) And the one guy had marketing skills. (laughs) And the other guy had a business certificate of some sort. (laughs) It just goes to show you, they were marketing this. They're spinning it. And, then, and we went to every single meeting we could get to that they were at. And we asked questions that they weren't willing to answer. The one lady presented them with 56 questions one day. And they said, well, we'll have to take these back and we'll come back with answers. Well, meeting after meeting, they'd maybe give answers to two of the questions. You know, and they never could or didn't want to answer the other questions. And the one big thing that we kept on top of them about was how do you determine a willing host community? You know, they just hemmed and hawed around the whole thing. And to this day, they still haven't specifically said how they're going to determine a willing host community because everybody in those communities should have a say. And anybody that understands completely and is completely informed from both aspects needs to be able to make that decision. And they weren't willing to do that. They left Saskatchewan because we were able to turn the majority of the people against them. Even people who were uranium miners said, no way, we will put our bodies on the line before we let them bring this stuff back to Saskatchewan. So with the push to reopen the uranium mines, a lot of it pegged to the war in Ukraine. What if any resistance or pushback or organizing is currently taking place in Saskatchewan? Right now, there's a bit of organizing regarding the SMRs and the fact that these things could be like in Ukraine with any nuclear reactor could become a target in a war, become a dirty bomb. Nationally, because this is being pushed nationally just not in Saskatchewan, but it's being pushed nationally and it's being pushed for use in remote communities as an answer to not using diesel generators. In the far north, they still use a lot of diesel generators, but the population of the far north isn't that big. The communities are not that large. So the actual impact of those diesel generators is being kind of manipulated out of proportion. Like one community did a a complete research on it and came out with a report and says, okay, you couldn't come here during winter weather and a storm to help us when our diesel generator blew up. How are you going to prepare us and protect us from a screw up from an SMR, from a nuclear reactor? And they have no answer because they're not prepared. In fact, I sat on a panel with some people from Canadian nuclear laboratories. We were having a debate on this whole SMR thing. And their response was, well, if an SMR has an accident, the exclusion zone is only going to be a couple kilometers. Well, a couple of kilometers in a remote community is the entire community. So in other words, it doesn't matter to them. 
like it was just minimized, minimalized. And that's not acceptable. Like it's still this patriotic paternalism kind of attitude that this industry is notorious for. Like nobody knows anything about it except them is their attitude. Anybody who brings up health concerns, they just poo-poo them. And they get quite nervous about it, though. One of the abandoned mines a few years ago went through a review, the decommissioning of the Clough Lake mine. And one fellow who had actually worked on the decommissioning and where they took shortcuts, went up there and did some hunting. And he shot at least. He was very familiar with the place. He knew where the tailing spawn was. Moose had been pawing through the cover to get at the salts underneath. There's salts in those solutions that were in the tailings. And he tracked that moose and he shot it. And when he opened it up, he could see that the liver was bad. It smelled bad. It looked wrong. You know, it looked sick. And so he was cognizant enough to take samples of the meat, the bones, and the organs, everything. And he sent them out for independent testing. And the results came back and he was worried about cadmium levels and he figured they were too high. He also shared that report with me and I shared it with Kreerad and they got back to me right away and said, don't let anybody eat that. The polonium levels in the kidneys are too high. Look, the unit is written differently than the units of the rest of them. That means it's higher levels. In other words, they manipulated the wording around it to make it appear less, but it was really, by simply doing that, it indicated that it was higher. It was an independent study, so like, but most people wouldn't notice that, you know? They wouldn't notice that difference in them. So he took that information and he had a meeting with Canadian Nuclear Safety Commission, uh, SAS Ministry of Environment, and SAS Ministry of Health, and he recorded it. It was a phone teleconference and he recorded it. You know, as Indigenous people, he's Indigenous. And as an Indigenous person, you know when an animal is sick, you don't eat it. We know that. We've always known that. They were pushing him to eat that meat. You know, that it was perfectly safe and that he should be able to eat it. Don't waste it. And they were quite adamant about it. And they were quite panicky in their address that he was going to make this public, you know. And he did make it public. And they had to do damage control. You know, they tried their best to undermine him, but he made his point. The meat was contaminated and it isn't safe. Those tailings covers aren't good enough because they only use the waste rock that is left from the mines. And there's only so much. And it isn't enough to cover it sufficiently. You know, in an area like ours where we have freezing and thawing over the season, when something freezes, it pushes things below up. Like, this is why, like, in a farmer's field, there's constantly rocks coming up. It's not like they're staying under the ground. So when the freeze and thaw happens, the rocks are pushed up. And this is going to happen in every one of these decommissioned sites up here. So it's not stable. It's not going to stay put. So what work is going on now? What kind of organizing? What kind of pushback? What kind of coalition building? And what, if anything, can listeners to Nuclear Hot Seat do to support your efforts? The uh, organizing is pretty weak at the moment, I'd have to say, because because of this pandemic, 
our ability to meet, our ability to gather was, has really been curtailed over the last two years. So getting the message out to people has been a lot more difficult. We are just starting to get in-person consultations like on the Denison Lines Environmental Impact Assessment. So we're trying to raise the awareness with our leaders. Unfortunately, like they're in a position because of that bust that the uranium industry was in because our, our particular band had a collaborative agreement with Chemical on the Millennium Mine Project, which was shelved six months after the agreement was signed, this 10-year agreement. And they lost millions and millions of dollars, their economic development businesses lost millions of dollars during that bust. So our band and some of the other communities as well, where that had spin-off businesses from the mines, are suffering economically. So getting the message across that we really have to be more aware of the environmental impacts and listen to our people more. Because more of the people are saying, no, we don't want anymore. We don't need anymore. And it's true. We don't need anymore. There's still, like the Key Lake mine has been closed for 20 years. And they're still milling ore that was taken up 20 years ago. It has been stored on site above the ground leaking right on all the time. So why do we need to be developing more mines? It's not necessary. Everybody's aware that there are other alternatives to nuclear energy. But the difficulty is that the administrations in our northern communities are hurting from their ties to the uranium industry and they're liable to take deals. They're already negotiating a deal with Denison Mines. So trying to get the message out, trying to get our voices heard by the people, asking the tough questions over and over again, educating. Uh, We're going to be putting out some pamphlets on the effects of radiation on health into the health centers because there is not one, you you go into a health center anywhere in the North and there's not one bit of information about radiation impacts on health. I just had Dr. Ian Fairley on the show for last week's program, and he is a radiation biologist. He's been a consultant to governments and NGOs all over Europe, and he has created a document, four pages with a lot of footnotes on it, about what radiation is and what it does. And I linked to it on last week's show. I'll send you a copy of it because that would be something that you could duplicate intact or maybe reformat it a little bit. But his information is absolutely rock solid and it's meant to start the education of what it is we're up against. Yeah, exactly. It's impacting our lives. It's silent. It's silent and it's invisible. And because it's invisible, they're getting away with it too much. Like I said, they're paternalistic. They know it all. We don't know anything. But it's out there. The information is there. And we just got to keep harping at it and making sure that we get the experts. Because that's the big thing. Money to get the experts in to help us prove these things. So we can take them to a meeting and say, look, these guys can't doubt you. We're not just lying here. This is an expert. I also talked to the Canadian Nuclear Safety Commission 
they approve every single thing. You know, they've never not approved anything except once and they fired that commissioner and then they reopened the thing. Mm -hmm. But our concerns are, you know, because the Canadian Nuclear Safety Commission is responsible for the environmental impact assessments on any projects, uranium and nuclear, it's not going to be assessed from all aspects. You know, I came across one thing a couple of years ago. We, there's, there was a leak in the molybdenum extraction plant through the floor of the Key Lake Mill. And they discovered it because uranium was found in the groundwater in some test wells. It had already traveled 15, 20 meters from that extraction plant. And they were saying, oh, it's just slow moving. It's not a worry. Really? You're going to be gone in 30 years. And there's a lake down there. It's downstream. It's going to get in. We're going to be here. You're going to be gone. But they knew that that floor was not stable because they'd replaced it once before. It's because the acids in processing eat at any surface. And they replace concrete. They just replaced the surface when they did it before. Of course, there's already uranium in that concrete because it had already seeped in once. So when they've shut down the plant because of this bust and COVID and laying everybody off, they put a layer of water on the floor to keep the radon levels down so that people could go in there and check the equipment and everything without being exposed to too much radon. And when they went in there the one time to test it, I don't know how often they go in, but there was no water left on the floor. It all seeped out. That was one of the concerns. So when we met with Cameco and the CNSC, I asked the guy from the CNSC, well, what are your standards for building when you're in using these types of caustic, radiotoxic chemicals? What are your standards for making sure these buildings are fail-proof? We don't regulate the buildings. We depend on the Canadian Building Code, the Canada Building Code, to come up with that. That's a bare minimum code. And certainly not tricked out in any way for dealing with something as toxic and as long-lasting as the radionuclides that get exposed in this process. No. So, you know, like this is one of the concerns we have when it comes to, you know, the buildings of SMRs. There's just too much. There's too many places things can fail. It's very, very concerning. Um, I, I think I mentioned to you before, like the Canadian Nuclear Safety Commission has already decided that any nuclear reactor under 300 megawatts will not require an environmental impact assessment. And with what they're doing right now in Chalk River, they're trying to promote a nuclear waste dump at subsurfaces, like partly on the surface and part below the surface. And they're trying to promote that as a means to look after that nuclear waste. Well, that tells me that maybe if we have SMRs in our northern remote communities, they don't intend to move that stuff out. And it's now been shown that the waste stream from a small modular nuclear reactor is up to 30 times greater than that from one of the larger nuclear reactors. So it will be a bigger problem from a smaller unit abandoned in the middle of your land, which they don't care about, but you're going to be stuck with it, you and your descendants. And, and that's what is really concerning. 
not only that, they're using language like we're going to recycle some of this already nuclear waste from these big power plants. That's inaccurate. That's reprocessing. It creates another kind of waste. We know that's inaccurate, but they're pitching this to the Canadian public. And they survey the Canadian public for their opinions. Well, most of the Canadian public isn't educated enough on this topic to make an informed opinion. Because I know I take part in their surveys and they usually tell me it's going to take 10 minutes. And with me, it takes 40 because <laughs> I know more than most. And I don't, I only know this much, you know? So you can't trust what they're saying. And that's something that we've never been able to do with this industry. We cannot trust what they're saying. Because they'll say one thing to get what they want, and then it'll be another thing in the future. Candice, if people wish to contact you for support, for expertise, for anything at all that's going to help this cause, what I will do is post that link up on the website so that people can click on it. It will be Nuclear Hot Seat number 575. That's this episode. For now, Candice... Of course, we wish you and your husband, Marius, and the rest of your beautiful family, long life, long health, complete success in your fight against this nuclear encroachment, this further nuclear encroachment on your land. And thank you for being my guest this week on Nuclear Hot Seat. That was Candace Paul of English River First Nation in northern Saskatchewan. If you wish to contact Candace, we will have a link up to her email on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 575. And we will again have a link to the Dr. Ian Fairley Primer on Radiation and Radioactivity that was mentioned in the interview. Every group, activist, and concerned individual deserves to understand this key issue in all nuclear matters, and no one does a better job of explaining it than Dr. Fairley. Activists, activists, shout out, shout out, shout out. Birthday greetings to Felice and Jack Cohen Jopa, founders and publishers of The Nuclear Resistor, a newsletter that for 42 years has covered anti nuclear and anti war civil resistance actions with a focus on supporting activists in prison for these acts of conscience. Now, that is an interview I need to set up because their historical perspective is unmatched. And for the tweet of the week, let's get back to basics. I was recently interviewed by the Coalition for Nuclear Safety, a group which is focused locally on the San Onofre situation, and spoke to them about the need for social media presence on an ongoing basis, and also the need to make our tweets and our Facebook posts basic at a fourth grade level so everyone can understand. So, here's this week's Tweet of the Week. Did you know that exposure limits to radiation are based upon a white Western male model, but that radiation is twice as dangerous and damaging to a woman? Learn more at genderandradiation.org. That's it. And we will have a copy-and-paste version available both on our website and within our weekly email notification. You can sign up for that by going to NuclearHotSeat.com and just put in your first name and an email address in the yellow opt-in box. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, June 28, 
2022. Material for this week's show has been researched and compiled from nuclear-news.net, deunrenard.wordpress.com, beyondnuclear.org, nears.org, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, or ICANW.org, HuffPost.com, BFMTV.com, EnergyIntel.com, Counterpunch.org, Newsweek.com, TVO.org, TheDiplomat.com, TheBulletin.org, Scotsman.com, Fukushima-Diary.com, Good to See You in Action Again, Mochizuki, TEPCO.co.jp, Nippon.com, Asia-PacificResearch.com, Mainichi.jp, msn.com, carlsbaddesal.com, and the captured and compromised by the industry they're supposed to be regulating, Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Linda Pence-Gunter is traveling this week and will be back next week with another Nuclear Hot Seat Hot Story. Hey, want to make certain you never miss another episode of Nuclear Hot Seat? It's easy to get it delivered to your email inbox every week. A single email. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com, look for the yellow box, put in your first name and email address, and every week you'll get one email from us with the link and a short description of the show's content. If you prefer to get your podcast by other means, just subscribe to it on your favorite podcast channel. If you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send it in an email to info at NuclearHotSeat.com. That's where I go first thing every morning to find the information, so that's the best way to get it to me. And remember, if you appreciate weekly verifiable news updates about nuclear issues around the world, take a moment, go to the website, NuclearHotSeat.com, and look for the red button. Click on it and know that anything you can do will help, and we really appreciate your support. This episode of Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2022, Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed, as long as proper attribution is provided. Just name me, the website, and if you cite any guests, put their information in as well. This is Libby Halevi, producer host of Nuclear Hot Seat, reminding you that contamination to our water, our land, and our air from nuclear radiation is forever. So let's stop whatever we can now. There you go. You have just had your weekly nuclear wake-up call. So don't go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat. What are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat. What have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat. The corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.